return today to 2 Peter chapter 2 and resume the study of false prophets. <clears throat> the title today, Deliverance and Restoration and Reservation, is taken from verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment <clears throat> for the day of judgment. <clears throat> God knows how to deliver the righteous from temptations. And God knows how to reserve <clears throat> unjust persons for judgment. Some questions would come out of today's text. <clears throat> Since God knows how to, do, to deliver the righteous, is it then impossible for a believer to fall out of salvation? <clears throat> In what ways does God reserve the unjust for judgment? Does it mean that some individuals have no opportunity to repent and be forgiven? Now, let me say <clears throat> at the outset that my purpose is not to debate <clears throat> theology that is to some extent unknowable. Colin, would you get me another glass of water, please? <clears throat> at this rate, I'm going to drink a lot of water uh, this morning. <clears throat> uh, some things just are secret. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So there are secret things. We need to acknowledge that up front. And we can't resolve secret things today, which <clears throat> theologians have wrestled with for centuries. At the same time, I can't ignore issues that come up in the passage that we're in, <clears throat> so perhaps there'll be a few comments on some of those questions along the way. <clears throat> with that introduction, we'll begin where the passage does, with the man Lot. Here you see him depicted escaping from Sodom with the very strong help of two angels. We read in Genesis 19, I'm in verse 15. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, <clears throat> the men took hold of his hand and his wife's hand and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Now that's strong deliverance for a man uh, who was really dragging his feet and not that interested in deliverance. <clears throat> the angels took Lot and his wife, his two daughters by the hand and walked them right out of Sodom because Lot was righteous. Uh, if all we knew about Lot was from the Old Testament, we might conclude that Lot was really not that righteous. He continued to live in Sodom, really at the peril of his own family. <clears throat> his wife was not, a, was not a woman of great faith. Uh, she disobeyed the angel's instruction not to look back, and uh, she did and turned into a, a pillar of salt. His sons-in-law, furthermore, were lost in the in the destruction of Sodom. <clears throat> but under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Peter stated that Lot was righteous. 
and stated that his soul was oppressed and tormented by the filthy conduct of the sodomites. Uh, Peter used the words righteous and godly to describe Lot. Righteous and godly used here is not a description so much of Lot's daily life choices, but rather a way to indicate that Lot was a true believer. When Peter talked about the godly and the unjust in verse 9, he was separating between true believers and unbelievers, the unsaved. God knows how to deliver true believers from judgment. God knows how to reserve unbelievers for the judgment. Lot was a true believer, even if we even if we don't like some of what we read about Lot in the Old Testament. He was delivered from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, what temptations does God deliver us as believers from, and how does he deliver us? Is it the kind of thing that I sit back and wait for God to deliver me? Or do I actively participate in deliverance? Now, part of the answer stems from our understanding of the word temptation. The Greek word used here is sometimes translated trial, and sometimes it's translated temptation. We know the difference. Trials are hardships, temptations, that's enticement to sin. Cancer is a hardship. Pornography is a temptation, and there's, there's a difference. Hardship, temptation, enticement to sin, but the same Greek word is used for both. Jesus said, pray that you will not enter into temptation. Now that's the, uh, that enticement to sin. James said, James 1, 2, brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. It's the same Greek word, but we understand the first to mean enticement to sin and the second to mean a hardship. Well, let's take temptation in the sense of enticement to sin first. Does God deliver us from enticements to sin? That would be nice, but I think you know that God doesn't protect you from every temptation because you find them lurking in your life every day. God doesn't protect you from the presence of temptation to sin, but there is evidence that he monitors the level of temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So there is a way of escape. The follow-up question is, does the way of escape present itself to me through God's doing, or do I have a role in finding that way of escape? In order to answer that, we need to look at a couple more verses. This is Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. In this passage, the way of escape is accessed when we watch and pray. <clears throat> Romans 13, 12 to 14. The night is far spent and day is at hand. Therefore, 
Let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Uh, here we read that we have to, we ourselves have to cast off works of darkness. We have to put on the armor of light and we have to take care that we make no provision for the flesh. If we want deliverance from temptations, we will have to work. God can deliver believers from temptations to sin, but it requires great effort on our part. <clears throat> it requires prayer and Bible study. It requires avoiding places of temptation. It requires avoiding people that cause us temptation. It might require filters on your internet. It might require accountability persons in your life. It may even require you to quit a certain job and get a different one. It could cost you. It could cost you a lot. But you can grow in daily righteousness if you aspire to. Now let's consider the other meaning of temptation when the word means trial. The Lord knows how to deliver us from hardships. But is it his common practice to deliver us from hardships? God does not intend to deliver us from hardships if we mean by that avoiding trials and having an easy life. That we know from James 1. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You know, it's the will of God that we face hardships so that we can mature in faith. Now, if deliverance from hardship means that God will get us through the hardship, then God does deliver us from hardships. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. God's wisdom will get us through trials. And I think your experience of the Christian life validates this truth. He has not spared you from having trials, has he? But he's helped you through trials. Sometimes you don't feel that you will make it through a trial. And sometimes you certainly don't know how you're going to make it through a trial. Some of you, some of you are in a trial right now and, uh, and you don't see your way through it. You don't understand how you're going to, how you're going to make it through the trial. But you will make it through when you ask God for his wisdom and for his strength. Now, one last point about Peter's words in verse 9. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. <clears throat> remember, the, remember what Lot was delivered from. He was delivered from the destruction, the judgment that befell Sodom. I read back in Genesis again. <clears throat> Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. 
from the Lord out of the heavens. Abraham went out early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. <clears throat> so let me ask you this. What future event is a close parallel to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Judgment Day, right? The Lord returns and judges, judges the world. You'll see it at the end of verse 9. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to restore or and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. The day of judgment spoken of is spoken of by Peter in chapter 3, where he said this, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And there you can see the parallel between the destruction of Sodom and the great judgment day that is to come. Well, Lot, he wasn't delivered from all temptations. He was not delivered from all hardships. But he was delivered from the judgment that Sodom went through. He was delivered from death. Likewise, the believer will be delivered on the great judgment day. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And further, we have the words spoken by Jesus himself in John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. <clears throat> and ultimately, I think this is the, the primary point that Peter was making. God knows how to deliver the believer from the judgment that will happen at the end of time. And they will live with God forever in in heaven. While believers must share in hardships, they can never be destroyed in the great judgment day. A couple verses from Colossians 2. You being dead, you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's 1 John 1, 7. We're cleansed from all sin. Therefore, on the great judgment day, we have no fear. All right. Now for the second half of Peter's equation in verse 9. The Lord knows how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. <clears throat> the reservation of the unjust. Uh, first, let's notice what kind of people are being reserved for judgment. We know the context is false prophets. And in verses 10 through 16, we're given a description of them. It's introduced in verse 10. 
where Peter said, and especially those who walk according to the flesh, specifically speaking, said Peter, I'm referring to people who live in this manner, and then he went on to describe that manner and, uh, for the next six verses. <clears throat> We're going to move through these pretty quickly. Last week we talked about three motivations that false prophets have. And this description of their behavior is somewhat of a parallel uh, uh, re rewording of that, so we'll move through them uh, fairly quickly. First, rebellion. <clears throat> this is verses 10 through 12. Especially, Peter said, in particular, those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and, here it is, despise authority. They're presumptuous, self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand and, they will, and will utterly perish in their own corruption. Well, what do they rebel against? Any authority, all authority. Because they're presumptuous and they're self-willed, that's their nature. They refuse to bow to anyone's authority. So false prophets first rebel against civil government. <clears throat> they're often found evading taxes or committing financial fraud. You've seen this unfold in the news, pastors who end up in jail after the government finally steps in. Often, all too often, there are also sexual crimes committed as well. They have no fear of the civil government. They rebel against, secondly, against the authority of the Bible and the church. They refuse to be bound by the restrictions of, script, of Scripture. Any lustful desire is their right. There's room for only one Lord. They are it. And so when you have uh, a false prophet, if there are elders in the church, they're, they're hand-picked yes-men who will, will only follow the authority of the false prophet. There's no meaningful regulatory body that they will follow in the church, and they won't follow the regulations of the Bible. They rebel against God himself. But, but keep in mind that they're subtle people. They're, they won't come out and challenge the Bible openly in their preaching. Most likely what they'll do is they'll, they'll teach only passages that uh, appear to back their preferred agenda. Or they might ignore the Bible completely. <clears throat> Jimmy Baker, the erstwhile false prophet, after he was arrested and, and put in prison, said, while I was in prison was the first time I read through the Bible. They have no sense of needing to obey the Bible, follow what the Bible says. 
So they reject civil authority. They reject the Bible and, and godly authority. They reject angelic authority in the book of Jude, which is primarily a, a diatribe against false teachers. Jude said this, verses 8 and 9, Likewise, these false prophets, these dreamers defile the flesh. They reject authority and they speak evil of dignitaries. Uh, what do you mean, Jude, about dignitaries? Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed the, about the body of Moses, dared not bring against the devil a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But the false prophets have no fear of or no respect for any authority. The dignitaries of verse 10 appear to be angelic beings. Now, can a person get away with blaspheming dignitaries and powers much greater than themselves? So we sang in the hymn this morning about the devil. On earth there is not his equal. False prophets are not equal to the dignitaries that they blaspheme. And eventually it catches up to them. Eventually the greater authorities will strike back. And we see this at the end of verse 12. They will utterly perish in their own corruption. Now, false prophets and the devil are alike in this sense. The devil is rebellious, he's arrogant, he's self-willed. He boldly blasphemes God who is far greater than he is. But in the end, the devil will end up destroyed, bound hopelessly in the lake of fire. So the kinds of people that are held for judgment are rebellious people. The second broad category uh, of behaviors is, is lewdness, verses 13 and 14. They will receive wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime, their spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. <clears throat> now the word carouse has the, has the connotation of, of numbing the mind by, with an excess. You could use it, um, for example, somebody using a lot of alcohol, kind of debauchery. Uh, now these these men and sometimes women carouse in the daytime, but this is not done in the public eye. Think about the ministers, so-called, so-called ministers who were exposed as frauds. They were practiced at covering their true character with a veneer of spirituality. In many cases, people were shocked to learn that this seemingly righteous man was actually a serial adulterer. He wasn't, he wasn't in his study in the daytime preparing a message from the Bible for the next Sunday. He was out pursuing unstable women in the church for sexual gratification. The false prophets showed up though at the right events they came to the love feasts they ate with the people 
But unbeknownst to the people, they were not worshiping. They were maybe panning the crowd for their next sexual victim or in some way building rapport with the people so that they would be trusted by the people. And they themselves were quite proud of the fact that they were able to deceive the people in this way. They felt of themselves as quite slick to pull off this deception. The third broad category of behaviors of false prophets is greed. Verses 15 and 16, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. Balaam loved the money that Balak offered him. Uh, So the Lord had told Balaam, don't go. You're not to go to curse my, my children, the children of Israel. But Balaam couldn't get that offer of Balak out of his head. Balak's men came back to talk to him again. Come on, yeah, no, really, really, you should come, you should come, you should come. He kept listening to the offer, and finally, God allowed Balaam to go. God didn't want him to go. God just allowed Balaam the freedom to choose to obey or disobey. In this case, Balaam had chosen to disobey. Like God does, he allows people to sin. He allows people to disobey. God allowed the stubborn Balaam to do what he already determined to do, go and earn the money. Uh, The angel of the Lord stood in Balaam's way, ready to kill kill him. Balaam, blinded by greed, was also blinded to the angel of the Lord standing in his way. The donkey, much more insightful than Balaam, saw the donkey with his sword in his hand and and saved Balaam from death. The dumb donkey restrained the madness of the prophet. So there's the behavior of false prophets described by Peter, summed up in the desire for unrestrained power, sex, and money. And in the pursuit of power, sex, and money, false prophets don't care what happens to the victims that get in their way. They don't care who is victimized. As a result of their evil behavior, they have, according to verse 17, a reservation for the blackness of darkness forever. So we come to another one of those difficult questions. Has Has God placed them in this reservation to blackness of darkness so that the doors of repentance are shut to them? That's another one of those secret things that we can't know for sure. But let's look at a couple verses briefly that might be used to bring light on this matter. Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie 
that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, this passage might be used to suggest that people get beyond the point of no return, even while they're still alive. But notice that God sent the delusion only after they made the choice not to believe the truth. The truth was there, but they rejected it. Before God sent the delusion. <clears throat> this is reminiscent, and you'll hear this question often. It's reminiscent of Pharaoh, who at times hardened his own heart, but then God also hardened his heart. What was at play there? Pharaoh seemingly made his choice to refuse to let the people go, and then God further hardened his heart for his own purposes. Now, a verse that might be used to suggest that all people, the wicked included, still have an opportunity for salvation would, for example, be Ezekiel 33.11, a very critical verse. You should all be familiar with it. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should ye die, O house of Israel? In this verse, the desire of God that even the wicked attain to repentance in life is shown. Whether some people ultimately are beyond the hope of salvation, it's not possible for me to say for sure. But there is an attribute of God uh, which is very important on this matter. It's his omniscience. God's omniscience is his complete, complete knowledge of everything, past, present, and future. And our lives are laid out in a vast panorama in his sight. Everything that we will do, everything we have done. He knows our past, he knows our future. In his foresight, he sees it all. He knows, God knows who ultimately will repent and be saved. Based on God's foreknowledge of a person's ultimate destiny, perhaps he may make choices to harden someone or send a delusion to someone but I find it doubtful that God would harden a person and prevent a person from salvation who might otherwise have chosen repentance and faith because it was never God's desire to see the wicked perish. It was always his desire that they would turn from their evil ways and live. Okay. Enough on that for now. At this point in the passage, the focus turns from the false prophets themselves to the victims of the false prophets. So read with me, <clears throat> starting at verse 18. We'll read through the end of the chapter. For when they, that is the false prophets, and when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, 
the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. That's the victims. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. <clears throat> Victims buy into vanity. Great swelling words of emptiness. They're vanity. They're, they're spiritually empty, but they are great and swelling. They look impressive. They sound impressive. And this is the way of false prophets. They're smooth. They know how to make people smile. They, they tell emotional stories. They, they can command an audience. Uh, the purpose of this uh, command of the audience is, uh, is to reach into their pocketbooks sometimes or perhaps to use their charisma to allure their next sexual victim. But, but nonetheless, they are very captivating and charismatic. And sadly, the great words of emptiness convince the hearers. The reason the hearers are so easily allured is because the false prophets appeal to the lusts of the flesh. See, Christian morality is difficult. Christian morality doesn't appeal to the flesh. The flesh doesn't like the rules in the Bible. The flesh dislikes the limitations of biblical morality. And so the false prophet says, well, let's just take the easy way, you know. Those laws of morality are, you know, they're not so important. Some time back, an Episcopalian chaplain in Baltimore said this. We all ought to relax and stop feeling guilty about our sexual activities, thoughts, and desires, whether those thoughts are heterosexual, homosexual, or autosexual, sex is fun, and this means there are no laws attached, which you ought to do or not to do. There are no rules to the game, so to speak. That's a false teaching, but it does appeal to the flesh. Oh, it's okay then to look at pornography? Oh, so it's okay to have an affair? Oh, so it's okay to divorce my wife for a younger woman? Oh, so it's okay to be gay or bisexual? Oh, so it's okay to engage in intercourse before marriage? No rules. Just love. God loves you. He wants you to have fun. What is the result? people who had escaped these errors, people who had separated themselves from the corruption of the world or entangled in them, again, <clears throat> they learn corruption. They allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. 
And then in verse 19, they're brought into bondage. The false prophets themselves are in bondage, and they drag their audience into bondage with them. But, but it's a bondage that has the appearance of freedom. Look, just do whatever you want, you know. It'll be okay. The freedom they're, they're advocating is a freedom from God's laws. But freedom from God's laws always ends up in bondage, in the worst kind of bondage, because God's laws are meant to protect us. A great temptation used by the devil is to convince people that God's laws are given by the stingy, outdated God who just resents when people have fun. And this was the temptation the prodigal son bought into. He left with high hopes of a carefree life, you know, wine and women and song. Finally, finally he got away from the stilted old father. But the freedom... that he sought ended up being the worst sort of bondage, destitute and hungry and desperate. He returned to the father begging for, for mercy. Now, like the prodigal son, people who fall under the spell of false prophets are lured into sin, which seems like freedom. And Peter said it's very difficult to get out from there. Once you enter into that sinful lifestyle, it's hard to get out. Their destination is apostasy, abandonment of, of the faith that they once had. Verses 20 and 21. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteous, righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. So those people who have the benefit of hearing the gospel and perhaps embracing the gospel at one time and then later reject it are worse off than people who never had the opportunity to hear the message. There are degrees of punishment in hell. The more opportunity you had, the more responsibility that you carried. When Jesus sent out his disciples to preach the gospel of the kingdom, he, he said that those who reject the truth are worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah. This is Matthew 10, 14 and 15. Whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Why? Because the disciples came into that city preaching clearly the gospel. The access Sodom and Gomorrah had to the gospel was much more limited. More exposure brings more responsibility. The people who choose to stay under a false prophet 
and learn their lifestyle of corruption or like a dog returning to its vomit or like a washed sow returning to its mire. They hear the message of Jesus. They consider it. Maybe they respond to the message of salvation, but then they make a choice to abandon Jesus in favor of the fleshly, lustful lifestyle allowed and promoted by false teachers. <clears throat> now it's probably difficult to avoid another difficult question here. Naturally, people want to know if the persons Peter, Peter talked about in verses 20 through 22 were saved and then lost their salvation, or if they were people who heard the gospel, considered it, but never fully committed to the gospel, people who were almost almost convinced to be saved, like Herod Agrippa, who told Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And again, this is, this is one of those mysteries. It's a, it's a secret that we are not probably going to be able to discern 100%. For me, uh, a verse that I like to consider, uh, it's a verse that I actually read earlier. <clears throat> Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. But when you read Second Peter, here at the end of chapter 2, it certainly has the appearance that people that were saved then turned their backs on Jesus. I'll read a quote from David Gusick, who I refer to quite a lot in my study. He said, regarding these people, whether they were never saved or lost their salvation, those with a Reformed perspective will say that they were actually never saved. Those with an Arminian perspective will say that they were actually saved and then lost their salvation. To bitterly divide along lines of this debate, which focuses on things that are unknowable, to outside observation seems to fall into the category of being obsessed with disputes and arguments over words as warned about in 1 Timothy 6.4 and that's where, that's where I'll leave that <clears throat> I have my opinion you may have yours but some of these things are secret the secret things belong to the Lord all right, what should we take away from 2 Peter chapter 2? Well, as I look at it, it seems to me the application has to be know your Bible. False prophets and false teaching are lurking everywhere in this world. They're on the Internet. They're on the radio. They're, uh, they're in churches. Your protection against them is to know Jesus Christ as Savior and to know your Bible. Until you know your Bible, you'll be vulnerable. The false teachings start very small and subtle at first. And the false teachings are promoted 
by men and women who are very skillful, very verbally talented, uh, very smooth, very convincing. And if you don't know your Bible, you will be vulnerable. Be like the Bereans, Acts 17, 10 through 12. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And these, the Bereans, were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Search the scriptures daily to see if what Paul and Silas said was true. Therefore, reading on, many of them believed. Why did they believe? Because they searched the scripture. The scripture makes us wise to salvation. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women, as well as men. All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way in which um, you've provided us a way through temptations and through trials and and the way that you've provided the Bible so that we can, Father, know truth from error. We thank you, Father, that as long as we are walking with you day by day, we need never fear judgment day for all of our sins are forgiven. And uh, Father, we I ask that you would you would help this group of people to have the desire and motivation to study scripture and to know the truth, to reject falsehood. And I ask that you would be with us as we continue to worship this morning and uh, help us as we as we share communion and and um, later share a meal as well. Help us to honor you in all things that we say and do. We pray these things in Jesus' name.